0: You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco, business unusual.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of uh, Topco Business Unusual podcast. I'm joined today by Stafford Macy, who's looking uh, pretty fly there in his gym. Um, I mean, you you've got so many attributes to sort of mention. You know, investor, lecturer, wow, ex googler uh, new discovery banker, board member. Um, crumbs, father, husband. Um, yeah, loads of things. And yeah. I, th- I think we're really excited to have you on the program. So thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Ralph. Yeah, pleasure.
1: So when I mean, you speak about sustainable employees and you're living the dream there with the gym behind you, the envy of all <laughs> business execs.
0: Yeah, look, at, I, I don't, I, I, I brag about it, but my wife's, I think everyone kind of knows my wife better than they know me, Lisa Rally. So she's, uh, this is her, the workout area and she allows me to work here during the day. It's the one place in the home where, you know, I can, I have a view 360 number one, number two is I don't get bothered. And, uh, I have a wired connection into my gig Ethernet router in the home. So I'm not on the Wi-Fi. I actually get to plug in physically from here because it's actually set up in here. So, yeah, um, she's. Um it's, it's just the world's changed, right? So this is kind of the office now. This is where I spend all my day. And a lot of people say I should blur my background. And I'm like, no, oh, this is my home. I get to share and it sets a context to who I am. And I think that's one of the – as much as it's been quite – accentuated in terms of the, the negative I think the positive is we've gotten to see into so many homes we get, we've gotten to understand mm-hmm. the humanity of our workforce a whole lot better you know the professionals that we rub shoulders with now we get to see very deeply into their personal lives and I think that's, a, that's an awesome thing to see your kid run in and to meet the child and to know that person's got you know, those, those limitations and they've got those challenges in their home and I think it's a good thing and it's forced leadership to really think in this more humane way about their yeah. workforce and versus just thinking about outcomes and objectives and KPIs, which are very, very important. I think what we're now forced to do is think about the human sphere of our business more so than ever before, you know, dealing with, you know, the the, the social construct all the way in the home. How does that stitch together? And I think a lot of that's cascaded over the firewall. You know, uh, marriages are not working, people that have children, challenges and school runs and and those things have all become not just personal they've become open and they, they truly are part of the of the diaspora of what we need to deal with now as leadership before it was all away from moments kind of hidden and everyone dressed up the right way now it's different and we got to be confident with these things so yeah i, I sit in a gym although i don't look like i i i sit in the gym all day what I do sit in the gym all day.
1: <laughs> well, I, think, I think that what you're saying is it sort of goes to this podcast really and what we do as a company we're trying to inspire the world to do good business and I know you're doing the same you lecture and you're helping and there's that sense of you know your background and I want to go through that as well because it is an inspirational story and you're talking around the warts and all and the challenges and isn't that one of the big challenges is that we look at people before us and and, and, they, and they approach people and say, hey, they're this or they're that, and I can't be that, or it, how do you do that? How are you the, the CEO of Google? How do you get on the board of discovery? How do you invest in this? How do you invest in crypto? Um, isn't it about that making us seem a little bit more normal and, and we have our own challenges that we had to overcome and that the sense that isn't the possibility, the potential, that anyone can do what we're doing if they apply themselves in the right way?
0: I, I, so some people look at my career and i still think i'm I'm an unfinished work i don't think it's done um mm-hmm. and and I look over my shoulder and i i was lucky i i really really was lucky I, I got to grow up in the technology spheres as it developed on a tectonic scale over the last 25 28 years you know in, in the early 90s when I worked at Talcott. Um, it was the time when local area networks were just being put in by large organizations. Right. And, 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 you know, to connect a wide area network back then Telcom had the monopoly and you actually had to get permission from Telcom to connect buildings right next to each other. That connection physically had to be done by Telcom or you need permission that the legislation, because they had the monopoly forced that. I saw the birth of local area networking. I saw the birth you know, and I'm talking from the mainframe computer to local area network. Then I saw the birth of the wide area networking, and then I joined Dimension Data after Telcom, and that was the time when when everyone was putting in Cisco routers, and networking was new, and it was all about the toaster where you plugged in the one side and the other side out, and it had the Cisco label on it. And Dimension Data was deploying these large networks, and it was fascinating. And then they bought Internet Solutions, and I got to meet you know the Apt Alon and Ronnie. And, and they were the first two ISP in the true sense, and they were providing internet connectivity for the first time—dial-up connectivity. It was incredible. ISDN lines and putting them. So I got to see that, and then I split off from that, and uh, they gave me money. I mean, a couple of individuals at DD gave me a check for three hundred and fifty thousand rand. It was more money than I ever saw in my life, and they said. You're trying to start a software business inside of this, but it's not going to work, but we love what you're doing. Go off and go do this because it's going to be fascinating to watch you. And they gave me a cash check. I remember sitting down with that money and looking at it, and I'd never seen that amount of money in my life, and it was 350,000 rand. And I went off and I built my first startup, and I joined forces with another guy, and we built up this company, which wasn't technology and product sales focused. It was focused on technologists. For the first time we were building up this entity where if you were software engineer a hardware engineer developer a hacker we would employ you and we bought a house in pretoria and we folded with engineers and we won big contracts because we weren't selling tin or software we were just there to provide skills which was scarce even back then and then novell came along and bought that and i landed up inside of novell and within my first six to nine months i bumped into eric schmidt and Eric Schmidt was, came to South Africa before he joined Google, and he came without any bodyguards, and uh, the, the country manager was sick, and I went on a roadshow with him. And, and we went to Cape Town, went to Durban, we came to Johannesburg. He liked me. I liked him. He said, come to the States. Long story short, I went. I spent seven and a half years in the United States, left 96, and then I came back in January 2004, and I was still with Novell. And when I was at Novell, in the United States, I got to see big things there, being in close proximity with him. You know, I got to meet Steve Jobs a couple of times because of him, not because of me, because of him. I got to rub shoulders with people that went on to do big things. And when he went to Google, that was the biggest mistake I made in my career. You know, what I'm mistake? I never went to Google when Eric went to Google. We had the opportunity with three of us. He offered us jobs and we thought like, no, there's Alta Vista, there's Ask.com, there's Ask Jeeves. Why would I possibly wanna to go to Google? Didn't go. I stuck to the open source software movement. I saw that birth in the United States when I was at Novell. I was part of a team that really looked at that, and that was fun. And then I came back to South Africa, and I was going to become a rescue helicopter pilot. That was what I was going to. I was in 2004, a year before that. That was what I wanted to be—a rescue helicopter pilot. I came back to South Africa, and Novell gave me a couple of golden handcuffs and said, "Just you know, keep pioneering." The, the kind of free and open source software movement with Novell in South Africa and become the head for us down there. I said, okay, reluctantly, I took it. And then uh, I, I was planning my exit, planning my exit. And then, you know, a, a journalist sat down with me and said, hey, Google's starting an office in South Africa. And I was like, what? But, but Google's already, yeah, I didn't understand it. And I think somebody that knew Eric Schmidt really well and that email got to Eric. And then he forwarded onto the London HR office and with one line just saying, make it happen. They flew me to London, reluctantly I flew to London because I didn't understand Google in any way or form. I came from enterprise software. And then I went there and I, 18 interviews later, I left London with a laptop and a Google credit card that didn't really work with the instruction to go start Sub-Saharan Africa for Google. And um, that was, you know, that that was that part. So I saw the open source software movement. I saw the internet birth itself in, in the United States. Um, and, and then I came and I started Google in South Africa. And that was fun because I had to like, localize a lot of the services, et cetera. And then after three and a half years being with them, my professional life was at an all-time high. But my personal life was at an all-time low. And, you know, I decided that I had to disconnect and do something about that. You know, marriage, failure, personal, lots of failures. And then that's what a lot of people don't really know about, right, is, is all the failures that you go through. And um, I detached and and a lot of people were wondering, like, why is this guy leaving Google? Is this guy crazy, et cetera? And I detached and I, and I just wanted to reconnect and, of course, get my personal life fixed again and um, focused on that. And I thought I was going to retire. You know, I cashed it on my Google options. I thought I was done. And then, yeah, I got into the payment space um, through Interfile with SARS. Um, you know, they were doing interbanking and I got involved in the e-filing thing, which was next generation kind of integration with banks and transactions. And then I built up a company called thumbs up and that was that payment device. And then that payment device went global unintentionally, but we built it on the basis of a conviction because someone lost a baby because she couldn't make a payment. And I decided I was going to build a business to solve that problem. Got a couple of engineers together. We looked at it. And we said, let's build something. And we, the first iterations didn't work. And then we built the payment pebble, which is that little device that plugged into a phone. And then we built our own phone and we called it the payment blade. And then that went to Australia. It went to you New know, York. We kind of expanded that internationally, raised capital through Visa Inc. came on board. And then after about seven, eight years, I jumped out of that because I was burnt out. I was done. Like I was just completely burned out. And I thought, okay, I'm done. I'm not doing anything anymore. I'm done. Like I'm gonna probably do a bit of the lecture circuit type of stuff, keynoting, and then um, I got approached by Advertech to join their board. And then I jumped on that board. And I was part of that board for seven and a half years up until uh, middle of last year. I uh, the, the minister approached me a couple of years ago and said, "You got to join the CSIR. It's time to give back. It's time to, you know, you've you've reaped enough rewards now. We need you." And I, I reluctantly joined that board um, on the basis of, of that uh, coercion, and then. And then, uh, yeah, Adrian Gore and Hilton approached me this year and said, um, we'd love you to join the discovery, um, you know, family. And I looked at that and I wasn't interested, <laughs> but we, you know, we lots of discussions and I loved what I was hearing. And uh, there was a lot of resonance, you know, between them and myself. And, we, and I decided to join the bank and that's, they're doing a lot of work there. There's a lot of focus going on that in that group. And they want to do some crazy things, and and I and I thought, okay, you want to do some crazy things? I'll I'll jump on that. Awesome! Let's see if you can do crazy. So I'm um, I'm loving it. I love mingling with an amazing team. And I think throughout my career, if you had to take a look at it, I can see a lot of failures. I and that's probably why I'm a good person to speak to and a big good person that, to man to mentor somebody. It's not because I've been successful. It's because actually, I've actually I fucked up a lot. Like I messed up a lot in my life, right? And I think through those. Through so those learnings, i built personal character as much as, obviously, from a professional perspective, I've got the scars to know how not to do it simply because I stepped into that trap and, and I did it myself. And yeah, and at the end of the day, it's not about the idea. It's not about the service. It's not what you're doing. It's the people that you surround yourself with. You know, the one thing that I've, I'm being good at in my in my life is, is, is coagulating incredible minds and having those minds point to a certain direction. And those teams are actually... The success that I've had that if you ask me one thing I think it was the human beings that I managed to build up in my career that led to outcomes that would have led to outcomes anyway I was just there by circumstance but it's really that team that, that delivered on that technology or that improvisation or, or whatever happened there and I was lucky to be there at that time but just recapping I've been lucky in my life yeah. I've seen multiple massive technological shifts happen and so I get called into a lot of board meetings, into a lot of executive meetings now. And a lot of people ask me where the world's going. What's up? Especially now. like with the pandemic. <laughs> what the hell is going on? And I, I get called into to answer a lot of those questions. So, yeah. We're going to talk about that. In a nutshell, that's who
1: I am. That was, that was a nutshell. That was well done, actually. I think that was uh, a great intro. Um, and, and you mentioned the word lucky a lot of times, which is lucky for me, because I want to talk about luck and bad luck. There's a book, um, From Good to Great, and they measured luck in organisations that succeed. You know the story, right? And they found that luck was equal, but those that used their luck succeeded. But also people get bad luck, and it's how we develop that. There's these things that go wrong, and so things in your career has gone wrong, in personal life. And so maybe you can help by giving us some, you know, we're going to talk about the future and where things are going, but what are the things that you now do? You talk about building teams, something you've done. So how do you build a team? What do you do? Is that, you know, right. you've spoken a lot also about empathy, that listening part. Yeah. Um, I know you come from, you know, humble beginnings. Is it, that, is it that sense of feeling like no one cares, no one's listening that has made you then become a superpower of listening? So how how is that building that team? And then what are the things that you are no-nos now? Like, I see you've got the gym behind you, so keeping it healthy
0: is probably like, you know, yeah, is,
1: is, that, is that a way of looking at uh, keeping healthy?
0: <laughs> I think, if, I mean, there's multiple questions there, and I'll, and I'll try and, 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 and kind of target each one of them. I think, firstly, is one of the things that I learned when I was at Google that was invaluable. So if you are to ask me in your time at Google, I, I seem to always stand in the shadow of, of that Part of my career I'm always known as the Google guy and I've I've tried to like shun it away because I think like I've done so many other things since since then I mean that was 2009 you know mm-hmm. I joined 2006 I left there 2009 or 2010 and that, that's like a, that's like a decade ago but I, but I always introduced me as the guy that founded Google and so I think and I think that was a good thing but let me just take the the gem out of that right so what did yeah. I take from Google and I think what I took from Google is will answer one of your questions around how do you build incredible teams and how do you do that? And I think one of the things I learned to Google was exactly that. They, there was one thing that that company did better and uniquely versus anywhere else that I had been in my career before and anything since, and that was the ability to identify talent and to get their leadership in their business, so director level and above, to identify that talent. And like, how how do you know someone is a, a superstar? So here's a little trick that someone can take away from this. Right? Um, when we when we when I mean, Google was infamous, and I think they still do this, when I, I mean, it took 18 interviews, and then I, I got the role on that day, I did 18 interviews in They're one They're trying day. to wear you down. Yeah, they, well, I don't think, I, I just think that everyone in the business, let me tell you the process, there's a recruitment office that kind of looks at your academic records, and they take a look at your, your CV, just generally, and, and that's the first step. After that, when your CV went into the funnel, and that funnel, it was distributed across, uh, randomly, across leadership, across the world. So you'd be interviewed by someone from Turkey, someone from Brazil, someone from Israel, didn't matter. But it was at least X amount that you had to go through. And they were looking for a thing that they would term Google. Is that person googly? And, and let me tell you something. I got a, quite a few resumes from Stanford graduates, MIT guys. That I mean, you'd come and look at his resume and you'd say, okay, well, so you, you graduated from MIT. Well done. So I see like, our recruitment offices, academic track record, like cum laude, you're incredible. Okay, let's put that to the side. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. If Ralph says, okay, I'm a scuba diver. go, like, okay, tell me a little bit more about your scuba diving. And Ralph tells me about, okay, he does, you know, he's a dive master. He's got night chops rating, X, Y, and D. He does cave specialization. Et cetera, et cetera. And Ralph kept on speaking about purely his excellence within his domain. Only a big red mark would go through. And I said, okay, what else do you do, Ralph? Okay, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pilot. I'm a PPL. Okay. Okay. So your people, tell me more. Well, I'm a night-rated I'm turbo. I can fly turbo props in the other day. Excellent. You just kept on doing that. Big red cross. We were not looking for people that were academically sound only. We weren't looking for people that had a kaleidoscope of things in their personal lives that they were doing only. We were looking for people with that, but with somebody that would say, "I'm a pilot." I've been flying for the last few years and guess what? Where I grew up in El Dorado Park, I'm helping three or four kids over the last year get through, you know, pilot school. Or I'm a scuba diver and I realized that, you know, there's these two kids that I met somewhere X, Y, and Z and I'm going to help them to become scuba. There's a career for them in that. We were looking for people that show you attributes in their lives, not just excellence and overachievement, but sharing love and empathy. Because if you get those people in your business, you don't have to manage them, right? Yeah, and that's why you can, and that's when I was at Google, there was the 80 20. 80% of the time you did the KPI stuff, 20% of the time you did whatever the hell you wanted, and Google would pay. That's how I got my MicroLite pilot's license. Google paid for my MPL it's cool in Boston and that's why, and they paid for that. And, but the point is that in that 20% time, when, when freedom is done, that's where Gmail came from. I don't know if you know that, Gmail was a 20% project. Inside of Google, there's a bunch of engineers that hung out and they kind of coded. And then that's how Gmail emerged. And that became a mainstream product. Um, so so the premise of what I'm, I'm trying to articulate is, you know, what, I, what was gifted to me by Google was that ability to identify incredible skill and then to take that skill, give it a broad objective, and then just point it generally in the direction where you want to go. And then you can start doing things like Google did, that 80-20 thing. Like a lot of people... And now, and I think that's if you had to fast forward to today, I think a lot of leadership is looking at their business culture and thinking, okay, I've got to like redo my business culture because of work from home, etc. And guess what? Leaders that recruited incorrectly before are now having to kind of rejig a culture in their business and kind of reformulate it and try to comprehend and understand it and personify it. And I think a lot of flaws are starting mm-hmm. to surface. I think a lot of cracks in the organization are starting mm-hmm. to show. And I think that's one of the challenges of leaders today. And I think it's because of how you recruited. It. It's the type of people that you brought into your business. And I think if you... And, and that's, and that's you know, my startups. It even personified itself in my startups. I mean, Thumbs Up was an incredible organization, not because of me. It was because of the skills that we hired there. That was incredible. We had incredible people coming into that business and wanting to work there. But, but you know, now the question is, how do you attract? That's identifying incredible talent. So talent that shows... Empathy, love, sharing, and a social good in its personal capacity um, with excellence is what you want to bring into your organization because that, that's how you identify. But, like, how do you attract talent like that? That's a big that's challenge. challenge. That's the other side of that coin, right? One is identifying it, recruiting it, and compensating it. The other one is and retaining it. Um, uh, the other side to that is how do you attract it? And I think, I think. You know, we hear about this word a lot and I hear a lot and I'm it's a little bit irritating. It's like there's a few words that I don't like at the moment. I don't like cloud and I don't like I don't like purpose. I don't know why, but like people just use these words so loosely. Um but I think purpose is so important right now. You know, that's how and and, and I remember when I this is my lesson that I took from Thumbs Up, when I bought thumbs up, right? Um it's it's how I look at entrepreneurship. You know, every I always say, because people kind of glamorize entrepreneurship and like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and start their own business, especially in this time. And I go, go go ahead. Right? But I can tell you something. <laughs> entrepreneurship is something to be feared. It's not something to be, you know, like just the greatest thing is to know whether you are one or not one from an entrepreneurship perspective. And I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. And I always say this before I get there, I always say entrepreneurship is not for everyone, but everyone should try it once. Like get it out your system see if it's for you and then if it's not for you sit in the slipstream of someone that is an entrepreneur add incredible value there and you'll have immense purpose and fulfillment right i mean being the tip of the spear uh, not the wood behind the arrow means you have to take on a lot of things and so not a lot of people are built for that i mean they're not a lot they're not built from that from a family structure perspective a personality perspective it's just not for them but You know, I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. I think there's inventive entrepreneurs and then there's innovative entrepreneurs. I think inventive Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs are very different from innovative entrepreneurs. And people say, well, Mm -hmm. that sounds like the same thing. I disagree. Mm -hmm. I think a person that goes and builds a digital marketing agency, that entrepreneur is taking things that exist and Mm -hmm. kind of putting them together and creating a business. And there's something to that. And I think that there's a lot of that type of entrepreneurship. Building a Mm -hmm. a mobile app development company. It's not your phone. It's not your operating system. It's not your developer Mm -hmm. kit. But you're putting people together and you're building on it. Mm. I think inventive entrepreneurship is building things that don't exist in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and that when those when you're an innovative entrepreneur, passion and you know positivity and those things drive a lot of invent, uh, innovative mm. entrepreneurs. Inventive entrepreneurs know that passion and bullshit, passion mm. runs out. Passion mm. kills you, right? The driver in, in the inventive entrepreneurship realm. Is none of those things because you're building things that people don't even know they need, or people know, there's no got mm. a magic quadrant. There's something that doesn't, and most people are skeptical that you're even going to make it, and you're going to fail mm. so many times. But what will bring you back as an inventive entrepreneur every single time is conviction. Mm. That's the driver, right? And conviction with purpose together is an incredible tool, and that's what you need from a, in a pure, authentic way when you're an inventor or entrepreneur. And that's what I built the thumbs up. I met a lady that lost a baby because she couldn't make a payment, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I've I constituted a team on the basis of them having a shared conviction for that. I took a picture of her and I told mm-hmm. them, you're not working for me. You're not building for a piece of technology. You're here to solve this lady's problem. She lost a baby during childbirth because she couldn't make mm-hmm. a payment. And I took them mm-hmm. to that story. And I said, you want to become a part of this conviction? And that's how I I not just identified incredible talent, that's how I got talent attracted to the business that stayed there. And we never lost anyone because everyone wanted to be there, not because of Stafford. And you know what mm. happened? We failed three times in that business, three times. We had to close the doors, we ran out of cash. I went back on the lecture circuit, raised some capital, came back again, and they were willing to come back again. Now, the only way you get that is when you're conviction-led. And I think that's in the startup realm. And that's my philosophy around investment too. As an angel investor, I'm a very silent. I don't like to publicly disclose what I'm investing in and who I'm investing in, because I generally go it's way before seed, right? That's someone sitting down there. What I'm listening to is, is, is the conviction, because if someone is really convicted, and I know that this is truly from a humanities perspective, you know, that the conviction is about a human impact story, that's interesting to me, because if that person is truly convicted, you know what? I know this product's going to change a thousand times what they have in their mind or what they have on the table but that mm. conviction will bring them back and, bring, and will bring the team back. And that's what I do from an investment strategy perspective. You know, that's as simple as that. If I love it, if I can share that conviction, I want to be a part of the story. And I think all the way up to the corporate world, you know, you've mm. got to find as leaders, you've got to articulate that authentic conviction slash purpose for your business, right? And you've got to get make sure that your workforce is so aligned to that and they feel so... They see themselves in that that's so important right now especially this new emerging workforce that is now that's available to us on a global scale you know i think conviction is a people we talk purpose 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 but like why are we here and what are we doing and how is it tangibly measured from an impact perspective i mean young people want to know that now you know environmental impacts they want to know the human impact they don't want to sit in a bank and just do what a bank does only they want to know how does this bank kind of operate from a human impact perspective what's the lifestyle mm-hmm. impact on humans and i think that's where banking is going to go you know where mm-hmm. financial services needs to go and i think that's a big challenge for leaders now you know and and, yeah. and I, I i hear it all the time and they don't want to hear no. it I, like how are you going to manage this new workforce well Yeah, I mean, leadership now truly has to have a human face, much more so than ever before. It's not just about the spreadsheet and the PowerPoints. It's really authentically speaking to something that you can bring the rest of the team along. It's a big challenge.
1: So, yeah, it reminds me of uh, one of the speakers from the Top Woman Conference from Standard Bank, and they were saying in terms of their investment in small organizations, there's one particular point they find when they're investing in an organization, that they succeed. And that was if they are focused around the customer. So when they're focused around the customer, they find that those are the organizations that succeed the most. So not about their balance sheet or their whatever innovations, it's around that customer. Let
0: me tell you you something, those snippets and little nuggets that I got from Google too around focus. You know, Google had... um, google's ten, uh, uh 10 things i don't even if you know that if you went to google i mean back then when i got there it was just newly formulated and they were changing one of them was like don't be evil was one of the 10. and then i think number one was focus on the user and all else will follow and that was their number one rule just focus on the user and all else will follow another one was don't you don't have to wear a suit to be serious and they had quite a few of these things but you know, focus on the user, and all else will follow. Was an incredible thing, and and I saw it inside of Google. You know, we we worked on a project that we thought was a multi-billion-dollar opportunity globally for Google. We had a project team together. I was part of that project team. It surfaced, at, at, in Mountain View, you know, with Larry and Sergey. And the question with that project, and I'll never forget it, uh, the question that Larry asked was, "What does this do for the user?" And and we we answered, 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 and he was like. No, nah, I don't buy us. And you know what he said? He got up and he explained to us what he meant by focus on the user and all else will follow. Because I didn't really understand that. And I asked the question saying, okay, but what are you looking for in a project? When you say focus on the user, we think we are focused on the user. And he said, it's simple. You guys are overcomplicating it. And I said, okay, tell us. And he said, yeah, it is. And I hope I remember them now. I think it's, I call it the Google four or five things. And I think every business right now can learn from this. First question is, if you say focus on the client or focus on the user and all else to follow, how do you do that? What's the measurements for that? Well, here's a a boilerplate. Here's a template. Here's a set of metrics. Number one is, does it make it faster, speed? Does it make it simpler, simplicity? Does it make it more relevant? Relevance. Number four is, can you deliver those first three with full verbosity? And number five is, Can you ensure that the business can do that with agility? Those are the Google five things. So if you look at Google search, they personify that. It's extreme speed, right? Extreme speed. It's extreme simplicity, the Google. I mean, you go there, it's just a little search thing. Number three is it's extreme relevance. If I search for Ralph, I get everything about Ralph, newspaper articles, videos, you name it comes up. The fourth thing is um, uh, 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 the relevance is incredible as you typing, things are finishing. So, and, and Google delivers that with incredible agility as a business. So if you ask yourself out there as a business, when you say focus on the user, what are your metrics? Are you making that service simpler, faster, more verbose, more relevant? And are you delivering that as in, on an agile basis as a business? I think that I saw for real in front of me when a project just got squashed because I couldn't match those five metrics. And that became something that I always looked at in every way, even from a startup investment perspective. Does the service, what does it do? Does it make things better? Okay, how do things become better? It's because they become faster, simpler, more relevant, and, you know, they, they deliver things more verbosely with those first three in principle. And that's, that's an incredible metric. That's an incredible kind of superpower when you can start looking through that lens because it really gives you clarity on. Are we doing the right thing? Are we going there? Right? And a lot of organizations don't do this. They embark on projects and they they think, okay, we're going to redesign our website. And then they start a, re, a website redesign, or they're going to build a set of mobile apps. And they you know they put 20 million rand into the budget and at the end of the year, they slap each other on the back going, yeah, 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 we've got a set of mobile apps. And they haven't asked, the, they've taken a, a shitty service and they plugged it into a mobile app. They haven't asked themselves those questions, right? Is it simpler, faster, more relevant for both And is it being delivered on an agile basis so we can continually aggregate service into that? And I think that's a big, big thing.
1: Yeah, innovation, right? It's an overused word and in too many values that they don't have those outcomes. I mean, mean, are you aware of like Bob Moista? Um, Aware of, yeah. Yeah. Not aware of, yeah. I mean, he's he's into a lot of this, right? It's um, job to be done. Clayton yeah. Christensen, those sort of guys, really interesting. But, I mean, one of the aspects I do want to ask you, if, if you're putting HR, and we just did the Future of HR Summit now, and people are the centre of an organisation, how do you get the right HR officer or recruiter to, to assess and bring in and attract the right people? What are the, what are the attributes that you look for in a recruiter? Because it might be different from a team member
0: right right I think I, you know for me it's, if you had to say he a recruiting officer and you know I, it is someone that intricately understands the business not the business sector or the product and the outcomes but truly understands the culture of the organization truly understands the human beings inside that organization and understands it on a real real personal human level and mm-hmm. almost almost does like an enneagram map of the leadership team everything in there right I'm, I've my wife's kind of switched these more esoterical aspects on in my head around, like uh, and it's it's geeky in its own way, and I've and I've really embraced the things around like the, like really understanding. What are you? What are you? I've been told I'm an eight. Ah,
1: that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I told I'm an eight. Um, yeah, I, I, I you know I, I have very little attention to detail. Outcomes focused. Uh, needs to lead the room. Leader. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The warrior. Yeah, yeah, that's. that's, I've been told I'm an eight. (laughs) Have you embraced it? Have you embraced the eight, the healthy eight? I don't like being put into like, oh, you're a Tory. (laughs) You know, I like, like I'm a Taurus guy. That's Enneagram eight. Like, I don't know. I, I think we just we such, we such multidimensional human beings, and I do think that you know whoever we are as a combination of experience when we were born experiences. You know things that were done to us things that we you know, how we handle things i think all of that is a composite of kind of who you are in a multi-dimensional way but i do think there's factors that influence your broad generic responses to things and and i i fundamentally believe i think personality types is a definitive one and I, it's really me, you know yeah. to stand across the desk as a leader um yeah. you know what what are the drivers for this person that you know like as an eight um you know, I just, I, I kind of build the plane as it takes off. You yeah. know, um, a, a six or a seven can't do that. You know, they really need to know what's coming. And they you yeah. really need to map out you know, the next seven days. And like, we're going to be doing this and this and this and this. And and, it, and you need to understand that if there's any change, there's an element of change management for that personality. You have to really intervene, sit down with them, explain the change. Because just pure from a pure personality perspective, they don't like it. That. And right? for them, change happens over a broader period of time. So having that ability to understand your team is incredible. Mm-hmm. Incredibly powerful. And I think from a recruitment perspective, when a recruiter if a recruiter approached me on that basis and said, I got a set of skills, etc. Really is going to work well for the business. So I can I think that's what I'm I, I'd be looking for more so than anything else. Someone that really understands the stitching together of of the business. And I do, you're right about it
1: diversity as well you know of of thinking and backgrounds and everything someone who understands that we need to take these different enneagrams different people from different cultures different environments and we've got it here in South Africa right I mean you can you can really get a good cross-section
0: but I think diversity so let's kind of bring it to today and kind of moving forward and casting our eye a little bit forward and bring some technology into it you know when when I looked at this word diversity um, you're absolutely right. There's an element of diversity from a personality thing. Um, I do think that the tech industry lacks diversity exponentially. I think it's the industry right now that truly, truly reflects and personifies what a lack of diversity does to a business and how you can have dystopian outcomes. I think Facebook is a dystopian outcome. You know, I think, I think we glamorize, and this is where diversity is away from sexual orientation your, you know, male, female, all the way through to color in the room, et cetera. I'm taking diversity really to the next level around, uh, you know, skill sets. Uh, and when I talk about that, I think technology engineers like myself get, you know, when we walk in the room, we wow people because we speak geeky things that fascinate them. And I think our industry is definitely the forefront right now. I mean, we, we you know, the top five technological companies combined net asset value outstrips every other company on the SNMP 500. In Europe, I think, even. Yeah. So if you take a look at that power, that and we do walk mm. in the room with this aura because we understand the stuff on a coding level, et cetera. So people, but but you gotta be careful. If you take this this thing and 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 you and you engage it in your business, you could create what I call a fitness function that will totally have a dystopian outcome. We really mm. have to think about the fitness functions that we're giving things inside of our business, because engineers mm. now have tools at their disposal that are mm. overpowers. And if you accentuate that in a linear way and you don't bring mm. the humanities into the room, you're going to have mm. a dystopian outcome. You need, in leadership today, get the engineer in the room, sure, but also get the guy that understands Greek mythology and journalism. Get the guy mm. that understands anthropology. And then you need more of those people in the room that can, can kind of bring a perspective, around mm. ethics, morality, you know, the, the myths and the principles of Greek mythology, bring mm. that into, the, into, into your diaspora. Because if you don't do that, you're going to build mm. things that you believe at that particular time has, and you'll do it so sincerely, but you will be mm. so sincerely wrong. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, mm. to me, the metaphor for Mark Zuckerberg is, is, um, is uh, Mickey Mouse in fantasy, Right. Do you remember Mickey Mouse in Fantasia when he gets the wizard's hat, right? He gets the wizard's hat and mm. he gets the hook with with all the code in it, like all the, the power. Mm. And then mm. he, he tells the broom, go fetch me water. And mm. then the broom goes off and then he falls asleep. He gives the broom the fitness function to go fetch water. And the broom mm. fetches water. He falls asleep and he wakes up and he's in this like vortex of water spinning around him. And you see him trying to undo that fitness function. And I think that's a metaphor for Mark Zuckerberg. I think he's told the broom sincerely to fetch water. It was, yeah. it, there was no anthropology in the room. There was no one that thought about Greek mythology. There was no one that was an historian or a journalist that understood. There was no humanities in the room and those fitness functions were given to the set of artificial intelligences that he has at his disposal now. And he is Mickey Mouse in the vortex. And as society, we're in that vortex with him. And we're trying to figure out how do we undo these fitness functions. And I think what we need to do is take a step back, diversity, is more so now than in the history of business required. Because if we don't, we are going to have businesses with leaders that will take technological superpowers and utilizing Zuckerberg as a metaphor right now, they will take those very same artificial intelligences and employ them to do more with less. Mm -hmm. And this fitness, we, and, and Milton Friedman gave our entire economic engine a fitness function he gave he touched the broom in 1971 or the early 70s and he said the sole responsibility of an organization is to derive value for its shareholders right now he tapped the broom and you know what that was good that was fascinating that was awe-inspiring when he said that that from a capitalistic perspective it made a lot of sense but we fell asleep and now we've woken up in a vortex of extreme wealth concentration with markets that don't serve them with inequality being, you know, AI is a superpower, but it's kryptonite is this inequality that we're seeing happening right now. And we've got leaders that have powers now. And I think leadership has to, you really as a leader, and that's what your, your ethics committee, your, you know, the the folks that really look at the humanities aspect of your business, make sure they're front and center right now, because you know what, Your, your CIO and all your engineers in the room are going to, show you how to do a whole lot more in an automated fashion with less human beings. So we, if we don't stop this, if we don't tackle this, then this lack of diversity is going to lead to dystopian outcomes on a mass scale. And we will land up at a dystopia. But, you know, many people have said this. I, I think a dystopia is a very real reality when you look at technology. But it doesn't have to be so. And if a dystopia did occur and machines mm. did displace us, disintermediate mm-hmm. us. It won't be because of the machines. I think it will be because of a lack of creativity on behalf of leadership to, to see a new day, to take yeah. a look at the tools and realize. I mean, when, in banking, when we shoved the ATM into banking, you know, the automated teller, um, you know, we didn't lay off all the tellers. We yeah. kind of took people away from sitting on a chair all day, shoving fat wads of paper through thick glass panes. And we we gave them a computer and we augmented them with technology and gave them access to content and we created information workers. And through knowledge workers, etc., and through that diversification, we created a new portfolio of services and financial services. So machines are here to free us up from doing the stuff that is mundane and shitty, which we shouldn't be doing. But if we're not careful, machine-human symbiosis is the most beautiful gift that's ever been given to leadership. What you can do with your human resources, when combined with your disparate species of artificial cognition, that outcome could create a new set of portfolio and services that were previously unimagined. Just like a bookstore that went online, decided Mm -hmm. to take its infrastructure and shared and created one of the most valuable companies in the world today. Amazon was a bookstore, AWS them taking computing power that they weren't utilizing and creating an API to that and enabling all of us to utilize it. And arguably, that's one of the most valuable businesses in the world today. And I think that's, again, another metaphor for yeah. the promise. So, 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 you know, what we need from a diversity perspective is a diversity in thinking. We one can't set. just be an insurance company. Why, why can't you be a tech services company even though your core was insurance? Why, why can't you take a look at your human ass? Why are you shutting all your back branches? Those are facilities with human beings in them. If you overlay that with AI, you could suddenly start generating services that were unimaginable. And I think it's a lack of creativity on behalf of leadership to utilize these tools, not just to disintermediate humanity, but to create a diversification of portfolio of services that were previously like unimaginable. So I do think we need to reimagine. And I think that's the greatest responsibility that we have to have today is to reimagine um, ourselves and our businesses in a new way. Because whatever you're thinking of is truly, truly possible. It's
1: funny. Um, I've been scammed twice in my life. And both times it was when I wanted to buy a Mustang, a 1969 Fastback. Right. And I paid money across, so I got all excited. And then last night, so funny you talk about this, but last night I was on Facebook and I saw an ad for Amazon tokens. Right. And I thought, I'll buy them. I'll use my Bitcoin. <laughs> and i and i was going to buy five thousand dollars worth right. from my bitcoin and i showed my wife and for some reason i said no no because she holds the wallet come pay this thing just take a picture and let it go through and i realized it was a scam and it was from facebook
0: right. and so
1: all the things you're talking around we're getting excited ethically there's there's a lack of this in terms of bias you've got these sports stars who are getting sort of um abused Um, on these different platforms there seems to be a lack of ethical um, energy on around these technologies and so then I ask a question is that if we know that there's a problem and we know that's a leadership how do how do we how do we recruit against some of these things how do we recruit in terms of integrity what are some of the tools
0: that you've used so so that's such a that's such a such an interesting one and I and I think it is a societal challenge right now. Um you know, I, I I I think it was Copernicus that said the following, and I and I, and I stand corrected, but I, I'm just trying to shuffle through the ledger of my mind just to come back. But I think it was Copernicus, so maybe not him, but one of the can the, the, kind of these these almost like deities in terms of their intellectual capability in the past said the following. And I remember doing a lecture with business school one day about it where he said, you know, reading is less than 150 years old, right? So, so the ability to read and write en masse is, is young. You know, just, just think about that for a second, right? Um, the ability to take thoughts away in a book. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, when, if you take a look at photography, the first instantiation of photography en masse and its impact was in Paris. And, and you know what made it really, really popular was when men could take, men and probably women, could take pictures of naked women And walk away with it. They were never (laughs) able to do that in the history of mankind or humankind. They were never able to take a picture of a naked human being and actually go. And you know what? Prostitution actually took a dive. The the prostitution in this. Men were more interested in a picture of a naked woman and being alone with that than actually being physically with somebody. And that was quite profound because that was. A, a set of receptors of something in our brain that suddenly switched on, that was laying dormant there all the time. And it was always there. And then suddenly it was there and we could like exercise it, right? It's a, it's like, it's like putting, okay, I'll fast forward a bit, but like taking a book away was a profound thing because the way you gained access from knowledge from afar was not even reading a newspaper. It was the bishop that had the rights you know, the spiritual rights to read the book would come to the town square and put the big book on his lap. And then he would do the modem that would wirelessly convey the messages in that book. Right. And, and those thoughts is all that you could go away with when, when man on mass could read and write, we could put thoughts onto paper and use the technology of a pen and paper and go away with Ralph's thoughts and his ideas and go away and become contemplative and, and kind of think about that and actually that ability was profound we never mm. that was there latent in our cranium but we just didn't unleash it right and that unleashed so much and that's always been inherent in us that we've always wanted to like express ourselves in one way or form and the written word was it but copernicus i think was the guy that said um you know when there was a lot of fighting for everyone to read and have access to books and right and he said if all mankind get to read and write. And everyone gets to put their thoughts on paper and, and take away those thoughts of other people. Mankind will go mad. And I'm paraphrasing heavily, right? And I don't even know if it's Copernicus, but I definitely read it. And I I did a lecture like 15 years ago, maybe, at a, at a business school. And I said how farcical that is. And I spoke about social media in this way where it was accentuating this capability now, where we have this ability to put our thoughts, not... Take a, look at the guy in the cave. He walked into the cave, right? Put clay in his mouth, put his hand on the cave wall and spat. And that was him expressing himself on the cave wall. And and then, you know, kind of fast forward to today, we have digital walls. And you know we call the Facebook wall, your Twitter wall. And you go there and you just, you, 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 you know, you clay in your mouth, metaphorically speaking, you put it up there, you say how you feel, you express your thoughts in ways that... And, Copernicus may have been right. I think he was right. And I'm starting to come to that realization, literally over the last 24 months, that if all mankind has the ability to put their thoughts on paper, and everyone has a view, and everyone has a soapbox, and no one has authority anymore, and everyone has facts, and all facts can be argued, then maybe humanity does go mad. Yeah. And I think maybe that is true. And I think maybe that thinking back then of those these philosophers was so sound because I think this is what social media is. And I've, I've been trying to teach business leadership about social media. Social media is not Facebook and Twitter, and you cheapen it. Social media is human beings going somewhere to express their humanity in ways through a glowing rectangle on the periphery of a network you know empowered by engines of artificial intelligences that allow us to do this in ways that we've never been able we can create a crowd we can have a voice and this power is a superpower right and businesses are struggling with this like if someone says something bad about a product oh my god i mean you can truly touch the millions of people all the way through to anti-vaxxers and people being this and like if and, and or trump and false news and fake news. or closing the borders closing book, like everything. It's just because everyone has an opinion and everyone has a say. And I think when we land up, but I think just the principle of it all is more interesting to me. The humanities aspect of that is that as human beings, we are no different when we go to Facebook or we go to these tools from the guy that, or the girl that walked into a cave and spat in the wall to leave a handprint. I think all of us wake up every morning wanting three things. Right. Number one is, and and this is why we do what we do. Like why do people kind of put their foods and, 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 and Ralph, let's be honest. Why do you put your son's achievements, his mature achievements on Facebook? And why? Because I'll tell you why, because when the like button is clicked, you feel good. Right. I mean, we all, (laughs) when my my tweet on Twitter and someone retweets my tweet or someone comments, I, I mean, why? Because at the basic fundamental level, and this is what all leadership needs to understand more so because of technology is that Ralph and Stafford are constituted of these three things. When Ralph wakes up in the morning, Stafford wakes up in the morning, these are the three things we want. Number one is, we want attribution. At our core, we want to be recognized, right? It's the reason open source software is so huge. It's because people get to comment in the lines, right? They get attribution and recognition for their code. But it's on a fundamental human level, recognition is attribution is so powerful. Number two is, every single one of us we want to feel a part of something at our base level, a community. Whether that be a family, a neighborhood, um, a, a soccer team? We want to feel a part of a community. So number one, recognition. Number two, community. And number three is none of us ever want to be forgotten. Instinctively, in the back of our brains, we don't ever want to be forgotten. That's our legacy. We yearn legacy. We yearn community. And we yearn, yearn, yearn for recognition. And that's why social media and these platforms are so powerful because they feed into the very core and those three attributes of who we are, our ability to go somewhere and have those things, not a dopamine effect only, but really these tools are built that they understand us. And I know because I know the engineers, a lot of them behind (laughs) me. They're building these things with a very deep psychological understanding of who we are as humans. And they're building it to accentuate us. And these AIs, forget the guys coding now, these fitness functions, that we've given mm-hmm. these disparate artificial intelligences are mm-hmm. stitching together an understanding of who we are and mm-hmm. enabling us to do things that is so out of character for lack of a better word. And I think this is having that we're seeing dystopian outcomes and we're starting to recognise and I think, you know, it's like at the end of the day, if you had to ask my view, you know, nuclear power spawned more peace on earth than we've ever seen in the history of humankind there that was the dichotomy of nuclear power we were going to destroy each other at one point in time kill each other and then suddenly there was this global consciousness and there was an event we went to the moon the blue dot picture and we all looked back at it and there was this like wait a minute we are actually one and we, we do have the ability to destroy ourselves and the kennedy speeches that spoke to who we are and then suddenly we kind of woke up and realized wait a minute and 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 that immense power that we wielded in our hands settled us down and we never had I mean, conflict really from that point in time. The, the globe's never been more peaceful from a war perspective. We've never seen less war conflict. Um, I think similarly, that is a metaphor for, for all these artificial intelligence tools, these AIs, these platforms that allow us to express our humanity. And I think, you know, I, I think it will just it will, at one point in time, I do think we'll run right up against the wall and that wall will be a mirror it will reflect our humanity back at ourselves. And I I fundamentally believe at the end of the day, humans in the end will do the right thing. Um, not in the, in the moment, but in the end will do the right thing. And I think these tools that we have are dystopian tools. They will have dystopian outcomes. But I think in the end, you know, that 51-49 that thing, right? I think, you know, 51% are good, 49% are really bad. I think that 1% is a gives humanity the median to continually progress forward uh, in my opinion. And I do think that, you know, where it's going to come from, where does it start? I think it's all the way down to the home. I think just like when you got music on Spotify and it's so beautifully clear streamed across your fiber line, it just cannot compare to when you put a needle physically on vinyl and you hear the snap, crackle and pop, right? It speaks it's almost that clarity of, of a machine still pushes you back to the humanity of music. The VHS cassette going sucked into the VHS machine and the sound of that and the playing and the, the, that nostalgia that that brings up, that, that, that element of us. I think we, it, almost in a weird way, technology drives us back to who we are. Like, like The ability to not forget. I mean, the, you know, a, a perpetual memory is a paralysis to society. If a machine can remember us forever, I mean, Generation Z. I was on a I was on a, a Standard Bank thing the other day with top woman, and they asked us about Generation Z, and I said, Generation Z. If you ask me, this is a, a, a set of humans that have their entire lives in a in a in a in a digital information shadow library. That they have no rights over. It's the first generation that's going to grow up with absolutely zero privacy. Because a domain somewhere has full access and will know them better than they know themselves. From when the time they were born in their mom's arms all the way to their 18th to 20th birthday now. These kids have their entire lives in the social. I don't understand what that means. I don't know what Mm. that means. That is a very scary thing. Mm. But my hope is that in the end, we'll do the right thing as humans. And I just think, where does it start? I think it's leadership. I think it's leadership. Leadership that is more... You know, as much as it is about technology today, it's more so about humanity. And it's, and it's been more so than it's ever been before because we do have tools, but I think we've got countermeasures and those countermeasures is for us to take a step back and realize that we can't build homes, families, individuals, uh, governments, uh, organizations that are extractive, net extractive. What we need to do is ask ourselves in our individual capacities all the way up through our organizations that we participate in and ours, do we derive less value than we create? And that's a that's a profound question. Do, do, do we derive less value than we create? Right? Uh, the, the most valuable businesses in the world today derive less value than they create. You know, Amazon is worth less than all the businesses inside of AWS combined. Apple. All the apps in the app store, the net asset value of all those businesses outstrip Apple. You know, Google without us and everything that we do on the internet is less. We're seeing this already that we we need to ask ourselves, are are we net extractive? Or are we creating a business where we derive less value than we create? And I think the second thing is, are we building ecosystems or are we building products? In a true sense of the societal impact of our organizations and upliftment and an enablement? Are we truly thinking in an ecosystem in a co-creative way? Are we building businesses that are just shoving products through kind of retailers? Or are we building an ecosystem that allows for true co-creativity and human expression? Because people want to, because they are augmented with these capabilities. Are you allowing them into your organization? And I think the third thing is, is everything that you're doing, you know, kind of based on love and empathy. <laughs> And that sounds, because if you think a look at recognition, community, and legacy, if you combine those three things up, that's that constitutes the pillars of love. We all just want to be loved, right? Mm
1: -hmm. What is love?
0: Love means I'm recognized, right? Love means I feel a part of something. And love means there's a set of people that will never forget me. That's love. Mm -hmm. Those three things, and, and technology is accentuating that today. And I think business leadership needs to think about how do they take that? and personify within the context of their businesses because I think that's where it starts. That's where the dystopian outcome starts being addressed because I do think at the end of the day, as much as it is about technology, I think it will be so much more about humanity. And I think that's where you'll get your competitive edge. That's where you'll be ahead of the pack. Not when you make the greatest product or service, right? Um, Kodak made great products and services but declared bankruptcy a few years ago. What killed Kodak? Like a piece of technology? No, they had, they made the first digital camera. They had a patent arsenal to match IBM's. What killed Kodak? Kodak didn't realize that what happened with humanity on the outside of their firewalls was Ralph could take a picture, irrespective of how shitty that picture was, how grainy it was. He could put it somewhere on a, on a wall, a digital wall and staff would click the like button. Because no matter how grainy the picture is, at the end of the day, the consequence of putting that somewhere spoke to Ralph's humanity. Humanity killed Kodak. Its leadership focused so much on was it
1: confidence? greed as well? Maybe they they couldn't. The net effect was that they were going to be less off because well, I mean, uh, photography would be cheaper. They couldn't make money from films, and so they didn't go down a certain avenue because they couldn't see the the opportunity.
0: So this is a this is like a, a five hour lecture that I do. That question: What killed Kodak? But yeah, I think <laughs> in, in, a, in a succinct way, I think it's uh, I think it's just that's a that that's exactly emblematic of leadership that is so focused on i mean i'll never forget who's the guy that worked at sun microsystems uh, joy bill joy uh, he came up with joy's law and i'm going to paraphrase bill joy's law he says no matter who you are no matter what you make there's always smarter people on the outside of your business um smarter and more uh, versus your core capability of your business you know and, and the opportunity today is to unleash that latent human capital on the outside of your business to express itself on the inside of your business right and that gives you your competitive edge you know when 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 steve jobs made the iphone it was a closed up device the first iphone remember we, every, all of us were trying to jailbreak the iphone and, you know the apple lawyers hung over the wall and said if you do that we're going to come after to you and your family and and then you know steve jobs had that a and you're all right wait a minute. let's create an interface and let's allow people in And he created the App Store. And then for the first time, we saw an ecosystem spawn. It wasn't just the phone. It was our apps on his phone. And that created this place where we could co-create. And that co-creativity spawned one of the greatest organizations that we've seen in terms of value and impact from a technology perspective, specifically, ever before. And I think it was built on the basis of co-creativity. I mean, Google's the same. Amazon, keep going. They all have the same mantra to them all. And I think that's, Focus on how do you allow latent human capital on the outside of your business, right? How do you cascade that over the wall to express itself within the context of who you are and your products and services? Because that's where sustainability comes from. That's how you build an ecosystem. And that's how you build a competitive edge to that. And that's a human story. That's not a technological story. Your CIO budget cannot keep up with the rate of change of these glowing rectangles on the outside. It's impossible.
1: Someone said to me once, the smartest people who work for you are outside of your building they do not work in your offices the smartest people
0: And and then your customers right they're the people who can help you build your product and that's a tough one because i see businesses struggling with this right so I, we know different from 2007 in 2007 something strange happened and I, I remember starting to talk about that for the first time in 2007 and and it was it was well, during my time at Google. Something profound happened in 2007. I was at Google, but three tectonic things happened, and I watched it, and I was, it was quite fascinating. In that year, um, urbanization hit a tipping point. More human beings lived in cities than lived outside of cities, for the first time ever in humanity. You know, urbanization rates went to 50-plus percent. A second thing that happened that was quite profound that year was um, millennials made up the majority of the workforce in 2007. Those were major, but you know what was major that set everything on fire from then on was when Steve Jobs got up on the stage and showed us the iPhone for the first time. In 2007, we got a technological thing that changed us, right? And that was the iPhone. The second thing is uh, where we physically were as human beings, we were coagulated and congregating in cities. And the third thing is, is we had this new emerging class of human beings coming into the workforce en masse, and that spawned. The technological change that we saw all the way up until probably the beginning of 2020. We are now again in another 2007 moment. right? The technology mm-hmm. that we see today is crypto. I think that a decentralized network of value exchange with no third party having to, to vet anything, this, this mass democratization of cryptography it's the, one of the greatest gifts that we've ever had, technologically speaking. Now, whether whatever you think of Bitcoin and Ether and NFTs and DeFi, I don't care about that. Uh, I, for me, this is one of the greatest technological gifts that we've ever been given. I think we have, this is our iPhone moment. Our iPhone moment is not a company anymore. It is actually a decentralized network that gets mined by everyone and it's very participative and it's en masse. And that's, that's aligned to the iPhone moment. I think work from home is no, not dissimilar from urbanization you know something suddenly we we not urbanizing we we, we so sort of, it's not counter to urbanization but something we this is all work from home thing happening mm-hmm. and we're all getting used to a new routine and and way of doing it and i do think from a dispensational perspective uh, you know the different age groups we're seeing generation z's entering the workforce we're seeing millennials and boomers intermingling and i think that technology has forced that entire generation uh, the generational transversal thing to happen where the 70-year-old the human being had to put their credit card into a website to get their groceries, right? Um, all the way through to the Gen Zs that knew exactly how to do it. I think we saw that funny thing happen on a multi-generational perspective where everyone was suddenly digitized. I think that mass digitization, I think working from home and I think this, this decentralized network are the three major currents in the water that's going to drive the meandering of this river over the next 10 years. And if you want to ask me what are the drivers over the next 10 years, technologically speaking, if you want to know it from a business, and humanities, a civilization perspective, I think the next 10 years are these three things. I think working from home has changed. I think businesses have put in architectures in to allow us to work from home. And I always ask leaders in business, that very same architecture that allows the thousands of people to access your services from the outside That's the same architecture you can use for anyone to access services on the outside. And businesses are starting to realize this. So I think you're going to see a new form of ICT infrastructure emerging from this because of what they've done, because they were forced to do it. I think um, your your constituency has changed. People have big bandwidth at their homes. They're investing in their homes. um, They're comfortable. There's a routine. um, And that means access to a diverse set of and a pool of talent on a global scale. I think for the worker, you've got to be careful. If your work can be done from your gym, then it can be done from Mumbai. You got to really think about that right or so, South Africa or, 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 or south africa. instead of new york south africa <laughs> yeah that, that's an opportunity for us totally. so I think this challenge is not just from an organizational leadership perspective. I think the individual out there you really got to think about yourself now and I think that you've got to like really unlearn and relearn you know yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so much My kid is graduating um, she's a straight A student she 's super smart. She, she can code um, my, my 18-year-old daughter. She's incredible. But she doesn't want to go to university. She thinks it's a waste of time. She wants to go on Udemy. There's MIT is doing a course for, I think it's like $8,000. UCT is doing something else. She's thinking she'll do like four or five of these things. And she started off doing them. And she thinks like that, I'll do this. And I'll just start working. And I'm going to like look. And she goes on to these bounty coding sites where big enterprises are putting up challenges that they have and they need people to code and you can become a bounty coder and that's how you you can make a life and like uh, you know this is just this is fascinating to see like the traditional way of thinking from a corporate ladder perspective from a academic perspective i think yeah it's just changed and i think it's going to be a challenge even for the universities out there yeah how do you how do you you're going to you're going to rethink education in a very 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 big way people don't want to go four five ten year degrees and then you spit them out and they can't get jobs you know, people want to have these like skills, and where do they get those skills in these like snippet ways? And that's happening,
1: right? Yeah, I mean the old way of, of like a lawyer or an, an auditor and doing intern and all that sort of stuff. They gotta speed that system up so quickly because I don't think that's the people are gonna have the patience for that. It's like YouTube yeah, videos that. versus YouTube shorts, right? They want things quick, short, impact, move on.
0: Totally. And I think I you know, this so, so this individual, I think. I'll just bring it back to, I'm on the board of Discovery Bank and I, through that, I have an opportunity to to engage with obviously the leadership there. And, um, you know, one of the questions was where's healthcare, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, it's 10 years from now and Discovery Health is dead. What killed it? You know, what, like what killed it? And it's very, very interesting, just kind of opining about that. I, I, I think they've got to be so human focused, which they are, you know, through their rewards program and your lifestyle, they really understand how you live. And if you live well, you get rewarded. And it's 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 one of the best lifestyle kind of data metrics businesses in the world, in my I don't think there's anyone no. that can go with them. And what they have yeah. is quite extraordinary. You live better, um, they reward you. You live better, you live longer. So they don't just look at lifespan, they look at health span, which is quite incredible. You don't want to live longer, you want to live an incredible life while you're alive and with quality, and you know, just you wanna know, be the sixty-five-year-old that's still alive for the next twenty years and you know, you're gonna like a shitty life <laughs> dealing with lifestyle diseases. Your your health span has to keep up with your lifespan. And I think that that's incredible. But what kind of what kills them, right? And and here's my view. I think what kills them, um, it's as much as it's, this is again just playing around with it. I don't think this will kill them because it's just too strong a statement. But I think the world today, from a health insurance perspective, is 99 one. It's 99 percent of health insurance in the world is treatment, and one percent is diagnosis. It's insane. It's like you go to the doctor, he takes out a file, or at best he looks at a laptop with your fi- a folder with your file in it, and he broadly kinda looks at you and he diagnoses you and off you go. Right. You are not being diagnosed extensively with deep big data-driven data lake ways, right? <laughs> You're just being told more or less and off you go. I think it's gonna change. I think it will be 99% diagnosis and 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 one percent treatment. And I think that that diagnosis will be self-diagnosis and i think it will be you know my that's garment that i'm wearing knowing my heart rates yeah it knows steps climb steps stairs walk sleep heart rate uh, oxygen levels it keep going keep going right i mean we've already spawning these rich data sets into into the clouds in the sky um that are personal biological assets and i think a coagulation of that combined with some more metrics gives us superpowers that gives us more the opportunity to get preventative healthcare. You know, Ralph walks into this restaurant and somebody needs to tell him, hey, Ralph, the last time you were here, you ordered this menu item. Don't order it again because the probability of you feeling lethargic in the next three to four hours is 80%. So don't, don't get that. And, and I think that's, that's where we're progressing towards in that sphere. And you see that the power moves to the edge of the network. And in that sphere, we don't have doctors, right? What we have is, is, is less doctors and more nurses, right? Because it's about self-diagnosis being treated in an analytical way. And when it's getting treated, it's getting treated in this targeted way. So a doctor becomes a nurse with a two-year diploma augmented by disparate species of artificial intelligence aggregating all these data lakes associated with you to give you something that's so relevant to who you are that has a data-driven outcome to it. I think that's how healthcare looks in the future. I think we're going to have hundreds of thousands of nurses, you know, health practitioners that have this capability to come and do this for you versus a doctor that you see a couple of times a year that broadly kind of gives you advice. And, and, and I think that's a great opportunity for discovery because I think if they can spawn and they can make that happen and integrate their lifestyle network with that, I think they could be the forerunners of this. But I think this is just this, these, in the next decade, this will happen. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to destroy a doctor's job but it's going to incur more medical work right just like when we were plowing the fields to chase calories right um with oxen and like on the sweat of our brows in the year 1900 you fast forward just a few kind of years to now you know now we run away from calories and we have michelin chefs and we have hors d'oeuvres and we've got you know we're not meant for that. We're meant for this. And I think every industry is going to go through these fundamental shifts over the next decade. And I think these big three things that I mentioned are going to be the drivers in those in those waters.
1: For sure. I was thinking now about the Garmin watch. One of my indicators is stress. i yes. thinking about work and maybe employers will be looking at their employees' stress and it will be integrated. That work assignment's not good. But there's a certain amount of stress that's good. You've got to test yourself. But certainly... Unabated, it's not, Stephen. It was amazing to have you on this program. It really was. You're, you're, I'm going to re-listen to it about three times, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much information. Um, it really was good fun, and uh, we thank you so much for for your insights. We're looking forward to discoveries, uh,
0: challenges, uh, overcoming
1: people's health, <laughs> and the banking.
0: I'm probably going to get into trouble for saying what I just said. I was just It was a metaphor, it was an example. It's got nothing to do with any internal knowledge that I have on the business. Big disclaimer, please.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved your thing there, though, about um, and it's often a thing, it's like um, before you, you know, you should try and live your life as if you're at your own funeral. Um, what would you want people to say about you and then live that life? And, and it's funny how you talk around the business going under in 10 years and what made it happen. These right. are two profound sort of things that I've never thought about like that. I've always thought about the business in success. Hmm. I'm, I'm very optimistic. I've never thought the business in failure. And then what are the things that we need to do? Right. What are the risks associated to it? So that was also a really big thing for me. Yeah. As I well. think it's,
0: a, it's a Jeff Bezos thing, right? It's okay. not, um, it's not asking what's going to fundamentally change over the next 10 years. It's asking what is fundamentally going to stay the same? Like, it's fundamentally going to say that your customers are always going to want the cheapest price, right? We know that's never going to change. So there's, like, looking at it just, and not necessarily from a negative perspective. I mean, I am casting, like, you died what killed you. But I think the other way to look at it is kind of looking forward, um, not in a pessimistic way, but almost in a way that says, hey, what are the fundamental things that we know is never going to change relative to the constituency that we service? Like, what's Mm -hmm. not going to change, Right. And how do we enhance that? And how do we, and, and, and I can empower that? How do we make that better and, and become the best at that? And, and that's how Amazon thinks, right? This entire, that, that the, the e-commerce aspect of them is all about driving down price. It's all about delivering in the quickest amount of time, giving you a service that was unbelievable. I mean, they, they're an incredible business. I remember doing a presentation about Amazon 15, 20 years ago, right? And in that presentation, an Amazon factory worker was someone on a forklift with a brace around their midriff and a big you know big warehouse and a big sign on the wall saying x amount of injuries not happened in x amount of days oh, so today, and the amazon worker is someone that has glowing rectangles as one standing on a platform orchestrating disparate machines on a factory floor no one can go there because of how fast they move and they're getting more out of a square meterage of space that was previously unimaginable. But they're not laying off people. Like that's what's strange about Amazon, they, they, they're deploying like hundreds of thousands of robots and machines and, and engaging in all these artificial intelligences, but they're hiring more people. Because Amazon doesn't think about technology as a disintermediator of humanity. It's thinking about how can I take my human beings, free them up from the mundane, let that get done. But the core services, how can I deliver that in an unimaginable way? I'll never forget it. The year before last, uh, I think it was Jan February I was in New York. I left my power cable on the plane. I'm a Prime member. I, I said, hey, can I buy this cable, uh, Apple cable? Um, the concierge called me in 35 minutes saying, hey, your cable's here. I was like, wait a minute. I just clicked. Are you sure you got the wrong right room? It's an unimaginable service that that they can actually deliver that in that particular way. And see, that's those are those things that don't change. Unbelievable price, unbelievable customer experience. Those are the fundamentals. Those are things in the next decade that won't change. Technology may change like Mm -hmm. crazy, but how does your core in that regard um, get emphasized and how do you double down on that? And I think that's... Because businesses, like Accenture came out with a quote year before last. I think it was two years ago that said, how do you measure innovation? Uh, and they said, well, whatever you're doing right now from a research and development perspective or an innovations perspective, whatever those projects are, need to represent 75% of your revenue in the next 36 months. If that's not your rate of change, so you know, and so whatever you're doing right now, that's not going to represent 75 plus percent of your revenue in three years time. You're not an innovative business. And I think that sets fires alight in executive offices. Like, wait a minute, we need yeah. to be more automated. And maybe not. Maybe you're just double downing on the core, right? And coming back to those mm-hmm. Google principles. Is it simpler? Is it faster? Is it more relevant? Is it, you no, know, are you looking at speed? If people are going to love something no matter, you know, speed is a key thing. Can they get it first? Um, a great book to get is Kevin Kelly's book, um, uh, What Technology Wants. It's a brilliant book. I think that's it. Yeah. What Technology Wants. And he talks about the fundamentals that people will always want. They'll always want it first. Mm-hmm. So create scarcity in a way. Forget, you know, what is is monetary value in the future is, is first availability, getting it first before anyone else does that has value to people. Right. Secondly is speed. Right. Outside of that speed has got huge relevance. The third thing is um, he goes through all of these things, which are quite fascinating. How people like um, authenticity, you know, uh, yes, people will want the track free, but if they can have the album with your, with your signing, they'll want that at a premium. You know, um, in-person, being somewhere in-person as whoever that is, that presence, there's a value on that. And I think, you know, technology takes away all these other core things, but it forces you to reimagine some of those services in a new way. And the way you reimagine those things is not to be the super innovative company. let go back to fundamentals, man. It's like, just go back to fundamentals. So for you, technology forces you to go back. Technology in your home, let me conclude on this. Technology, because of the transversal impact of technology in your home, because your kids are always on their phones, because your wife has never been more accessible to an ex-boyfriend or you from an ex-girlfriend, because your child as a daughter has never been more exposed to a predator, because of all of these things in your home. What it means is that you as a leader of your home, you know what you have to do? You have to have authentic, meaningful, human connection and relationships with your spouse, (laughs) And your offspring and your family like never before why because if you don't technology will create the gap it will mm-hmm. fill the void and so because of technology it's so much more about humanity you've got to like really interface with your children put your device down right mm-hmm. put it down and have meaningful connection you know you, you and your wife device free meaningful connection if you don't do that don't blame technology Right? Technology is forcing us to have a responsibility to go back. And I think that's the metaphor for business. That's the metaphor for government leadership. That's the metaphor for what the world needs more now than ever before. The world doesn't need more technology, although it's getting it. What it needs more so from all of us is empathy. That's more sure. human, human-based empathy, not machine-automated empathy. Human connection is what we, that, all, we all want. That listening, that listening.
1: It was great to have you on board. I I sometimes think of the word gratitude um, and how important that is. I was thinking the whole time, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. But I'm very grateful that you are on this podcast. I think you gave some amazing insights that hopefully everybody can really take away from. So thank you for that. It was great to look at your amazing gym. Uh, I've got to get back in there more often. Next time I'll look like I I actually use it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Stafford. It was amazing. Thanks, Ron.